0: What do we think would be the best possible learning environment for children to grow up in?
1: At one point who really became enamored of drones and he had watched them on on YouTube.
2: So how do you go from old school to new school? We're gonna find out next.
1: And now it's time for another edulicious episode of the Bedley Brothers Podcast, bringing you what's current and what works in education. Here are your hosts, Scott and Tim Bedley.
2: Bedley Brothers, Bedley, Bedley Brothers, bring in education, information like no other. Bedley Brothers, yes. Bedley, Bedley Brothers, bring in education, information like no other. Yep. First name Bedley, last name Brothers, Brothers. bring in education, information like no yep. well That's
3: ever- right, Scott. Uh, but before we get to our guests, uh, just give a quick introduction of ourselves. I'm Tim Bedley. I teach fifth grade. In Lake Elsinore, California. And this is my brother Scott named. Oh, no, I already said you. <laughs> well, that was good, Tim. Yeah, that's my brother Scott named Scott.
2: <laughs> i Scott. I'm a fourth grade teacher, combination teacher in Southern California as well. And I wanted to share a quick tip. Good. One of the things that I've really learned over the past few years is choice is a powerful motivator for kids. And I've even started using it in assessments, Tim. So I'll give kids different options and how to assess their student, or I'll give them different options in how to share their knowledge at the end of a unit or whatever we're studying. And so they'll get a choice between, uh, you know, drawing a picture and labeling things on that picture or writing from the perspective of uh, somebody that's in past history or creating a song or whatever it might be. But I think those... Open ended choices and demonstrating knowledge rather than these fixed questions that only get exactly what you think they might know, open up a world of information that you might discover your kids know way more than you actually are asking them to do. So you're opening up a ceiling rather than um, closing that ceiling for their um, amount of knowledge. So choice assessments, Tim, love them.
3: Love it. All right. So let's. Let's jump in and talk to our guests today. We have two guests on the show today. Woo! Uh, Pam, now I got to make sure I get this right. Pam Moran. You got it. Okay. Pam Moran and Ira Sokol.
0: So- Sokol.
3: Sokol. Sokol. Okay. And uh, they are the authors of "Timeless Learning: How Imagination, Observation, and Zero-Based Thinking Change Schools." So we're going to be finding out more about that today. Welcome to the show
1: delighted to be here guys it's uh uh really wonderful we're in uh, the east coast and so it's about seven o'clock tonight and i think you're quite a bit earlier than that where you happen to be and i guess you've just finished up a school day
2: we have early on, and and you wrote this also with Chad Ratliff as well.
1: Yes, Chad's Chad's our third co-author, and he would love to have been here with you, but he is actually in uh, route on a on a trip, and and unfortunately is not able to join us tonight. But said he would be with us in spirit.
3: Excellent. So I'm going to have to ask you guys right off the bat here. The title of your book provokes a lot of questions, I believe. Zero based thinking.
0: Well. You, Can you know,
3: talk about that Ira, what is zero based thinking?
0: Well, zero based thinking is, you know, a, a critical component of, of our belief system. And w- the simplest way to think of zero based thinking is what, what Pam always calls the Bell Labs moment, which is that if you were asked to create a system to help get children from the age of four to the age of 18 or the age of 22 and you had never seen a school before, had never heard of school, what would you do? And our answer is we probably wouldn't be doing anything that we've been doing over the last 200 years. Um, We'd we'd think of things in an entirely different way. And, And that's how we create, when we talk about timeless learning, we create sort of our North Star. Where would we like to get to? What do we think would be the best possible learning environment for children to grow up in? And once you have that kind of thinking in your mind, it allows you to start to draw a map from where we are to where we hope to be.
1: And I would would add that your example of sort of a tip around choice, we would see as fitting into that if we were taking the way that schools have operated for a very long time and we said, what would we do differently? What would we stop doing? What would we want to really think would help us get um, a level of support in place for kids so that they would be successful, not just for doing school, but successful for life. And life is all the time. I mean, it's uh, in the here and now and it's in the future. And, And we believe that that Uh, the concept of choice would be absolutely essential if schools across the country were doing zero-based thinking because we know that what we have in our schools to a great extent, not everywhere, not in every classroom, but we built a system of compliance across the 20th century and compliance is not about choice. Compliance is about taking direction, doing what you're told to do, uh, creating the products that teachers want you to create. So when you talked a little bit about the idea of giving kids opportunities to have um, uh, choices in the ways that they show how they learn uh, through assessments, we would see that as fitting within a model of zero-based thinking. You know, the other thing that I, I think about with it is that the the schools that we have today reflect the biases that we have built over time. And we build our biases from the way that we think that the world operates, what we have in terms of our own internal value systems that in some cases are, are passed on to us from families, in some cases we learn them from people who are influential in our lives. But that that one of the things that starts to happen as a result of those biases that we have, confirmation biases, is that we think the way things are is the way things have to be. One of the things that Ira and I had a, had a wonderfully uh, profound trip to Ireland a few years ago, and we realized that when you talk to Irish teachers, that those things that we take for granted as normative in our school cultures are not necessarily taken for granted in other parts of the world. And so we began to challenge some of our own biases and to challenge some of our own structures to say, if we were really building schools from the ground up, what would we not be doing? And so it's a, it's a little different way of thinking about how do you arrive at a place where you are transforming and not just iterating from what you've been doing. But in some cases, how do you totally supplant old practices, old structures, old strategies with what we think people would choose to do if we were building it from scratch? And what,
0: one of the things just to build on that, we you know one of the things the Irish primary schools don't really divide kids up um, from pre-K through grade six. They don't divide them up on age. And at one point, Pam said to a teacher, Well, wouldn't it be easier to teach this class if it was all filled with, say, eight-year-olds? And the teacher just looked at us and said, well, I don't understand. If you had a room full of eight-year-olds, how would anyone learn to be nine? Uh, (laughs) Which, you know, just touches on the basic flaw of dividing kids up by born-on-date. and. You know, the other part of this is, you know, I have this like 300 page dissertation I wrote on the history of education in America. And the reasons we did things, like the reason we have age based grades and things, the reason these things were done were for terrible, terrible reasons that we disagree with absolutely. Um, The whole idea of first through eighth grade was to get rid of about 10% of kids a year and get down to the 20% who'd go to high school at the end we don't believe in any of those things so why are we continuing to use the structures of that
2: why are we
1: go ahead i'm sorry
2: no why are we continuing to use the structure i mean is are we too far gone to be able to actually pull back from a lot of these things because i i'll i don't know tim and i will you know at, at thanksgiving meals or something like that we'll pound our heads against the wall thinking like man how do we how do we move this ship that's just so far out to, or it feels like it's so far out to see. maybe it's not as far out to sea as as i believe it is but um you know go for it solve it for
0: us we love it it can it can feel like it's very difficult but you you sort of chip away at it and you know one of the things we did a few years ago was we opened this first we had to add six classrooms to a um, urban elementary school and instead of adding six classrooms, we built one giant, very complexly multi-level, weirdly shaped space um, that for 130 kids and six teachers and to be K through five. And there was a lot of doubting of it, but a couple of things happened immediately. From the minute the kids walked into the space, they were totally comfortable. Um, as you watch the space operate, Teachers really never have to address the whole group and don't. Um, you hardly ever hear a teacher speaking because they're only speaking to one or three or four kids at a time. You watch kids flow in and out of the doors, you know, to the outside, to, you know, get themselves to where they're going, pick what's working. And once you have an example like that and people could start to see it, then you have a different narrative you can say to people you know, buy into it. If you, if you refuse to take the big chances on the change everything concept, um, people don't have anything to see to let them understand that they can buy into something different.
1: And, and so we, we've really been boots on the ground uh, looking at a variety of different ways that, you know, it's interesting, Linda Darling-Hammond has some recent research that really speaks to the idea that when kids travel in cohorts, whether it's middle school teams or elementary multi-age kids or high school uh, kids that that stay together for one reason or another through programs that are in schools, that they you actually start to see in a three-year period not just a real increase in the level of kids' social-emotional competencies, but also quite frankly, um, you start to see real changes in terms of academic um, uh, trajectory and. And we found that pretty interesting because Ireland certainly understands that. There are other places in the world and not everybody looks at it. You know, looping is one of the things that that we've had teachers do where they're moving up with cohorts of kids. You know, we have um, informal and formal structures for multi-age all over the system now. And what what teachers tend to find is that another one of the the real values of multi-age, particularly in let's talk about play, is that when kids are on the playground together, and and oftentimes we even keep kids apart by age on playgrounds, we'll say only the fourth graders are gonna go out at this block, but what they started to find is that the younger kids and the older kids, siblings, friends from neighborhoods, um, kids that were just intrigued with older kids with what older kids were doing, that that there was a natural modeling and, and the very thing that people tend to reject which is that the older kids are going to be bad influences on the younger kids or they won't play with them as, as nicely as you would want or so forth and so on, actually didn't pan out to be true. What we found is that when teachers worked with kids around what it means to be a community on a playground, the older kids kind of took you know took the younger kids under their, their wing, they helped them out. The younger kids looked at the older kids as a, another term that, that we've learned over time as aspirational peers. And so you started to see kids really modeling and whether it was in games or whether it was on playground equipment, some really good um, positive outcomes. And I think that comes with schools that are committed to cultures in which kids really see themselves as part of a bigger family, a bigger community, and that that multi-age, rather than separating kids from each other so that they don't know each other, they don't trust each other, it starts to build a level of trust in a school that looks really different than what you see in our traditional grade-based schools, age-based grade-based schools. So there's actually some good data coming out of some of the research right now around it, and uh, we we think it's a we think it's a real positive step. So we try to we try to get our folks imagining what the possibilities are that challenge norms um, that really are centered in how do we developing kids' competencies for life, and those competencies aren't just about academic competencies, but they're about social emotional connectivity, they're about physical competencies. And what is it we do to get teachers to take risk and try some things in order to have some influence that then starts to, you know, we found that, you know, just like the Twitter has caused things to go viral in this country, just like with your play, you know, that the, the power of being able to use networks allows you to have things cause more rapid change than if you were trying to do it through traditional uh, formats, like, for example, professional development typically has been set up in schools. Definitely,
3: definitely. Now, Pam uh, and Ira, I, I should have done this in the introduction, but tell folks what your role is in your school district.
1: Okay. I am a, a retired superintendent as of uh, June 30th, after 13 years in uh, the superintendency and 43 years in education, starting out uh, as a teacher. And I like to think that, that I've been a teacher my entire life. My, my titles have changed. My roles have changed but really see um, keeping children at the center of every decision that we make and taking the time. In fact, um, I was uh, on the first day of school volunteering in one of our new uh, schools that just had a newer edition open up. And the principal said, you know, Pam, you know how to get kids off of the buses, kindergartners and help get them sorted out. And I'm out there just doing that, you know? And so it's, for me, my job has always been about how do I use my hands and my head and my heart to serve um, our teachers and our young people well, regardless of what role I play? I always had some some different roles in life.
0: Uh, you know, I, I've had a lot of different roles, and, and I've... Um, recently moved away from the same school district that where I work with Pam. Um, I, I, as I always said, I came to Virginia to work with her and uh, uh, now we're sort of exploring how we work with a wider group of people. But I was most recently the chief technology and innovation officer. Uh, before that, I was the director of learning technologies and, and I was the design project manager before that. But other parts of my life include being an art student going to architecture school and uh, a significant stint as a New York City police officer. So, uh, um, and then back into education through special ed.
3: Now, uh, to follow up with that, so um, I already I already kind of knew that those were the roles that you had. Right. And as you were talking about these things, I was thinking, um, are you? Are, were you, I mean, I know you're retired now, exactly. Penny, but uh, are you doing these things, are these things happening in the school district that you worked in? Uh, in other words, is it multi-age? Are, are you getting rid of the standard model? I mean, what's happening in your district that reflects yeah. what your philosophy is?
1: And and the book, our, our book, Timeless Learning, certainly documents a lot of the stories of our system. Um, we actually made a very conscious decision that we were not going to look at it through what you might consider to be traditional sort of benchmarks and data sources that say a school division is bad or a school division is not performing. What we really went after were more qualitative indicators that said, what would it look like if we actually gathered together the narrative of educators and students that have been transforming our entire system? It was interesting because when Edutopia came to visit us a few years ago, they had heard, hey, is doing interesting work. They thought that they might land on a teacher or on a principal on a school, which is what they typically do when they tell their stories. They said we can't do that in Albemarle and what they ended up doing was creating a series of videos i think that there were four or five ira by the time they were finished yeah. and blog posts because what they said is this isn't just a teacher that works or a principal that works or a school that works this is actually a school district that's doing transformation work across all of its schools at every level 726 square miles 25 schools and for about 14,000 kids and so you know, we're not a huge system. We think we're almost the perfect size and the perfect geographic um, makeup because we've got rural suburban and an urban uh, ring in our our community that lets us basically test bed new ideas pretty easily um, and figure out where does it work? How does it work? How does it need to be shaped differently based on the identity of the area? And um, yet the the thing that we keep in mind is that the core focus of our design principles is how do we have kids actively learning, experientially engaged, um, which is why maker work became one of our signature areas of focus because we said the more that we're bringing making into our schools as a theme along with project work, the more that we're seeing transformative culture around what kids can do and what the strengths of kids are, um, what their assets are in that kind of work, as compared to looking at deficits. One of the things that concerns us very much in this day and age is that the whole accountability movement, No Child Left Behind, really, if it, if it put a light on anything, we really saw it as putting a light on uh, what kids could not do and mm-hmm. trying to fill in those gaps. And what we've tried to do is to flip that model upside down and say, let's look at what kids can do. And I gotta tell you, wow, when we look at what kids are doing in spaces where they're getting to build, design, engineer, make, create, produce, we see kids who suddenly emerge in our school system with talents and skill sets and competencies and capabilities that you would never see if they were sitting in a remedial class. And well, so and, we've really tried to make that shift.
0: Ira and Scott, you know, touched on something in his tip at the beginning when he talked about taking, you know, taking the ceiling off. You know, one, we had a, a wonderful teacher who um, was working with middle school seventh graders, in fact, and, you know, he gave them during a nine week quarter, he gave them arduinos and said, and his only instruction to them was build something with this and, and make, make it do something. At the end of nine weeks, there were kids who had built laser mazes, laser tape measures, had built um, solar-powered cars, had built uh, you know all sorts of things. One kid had developed a fire alarm system that not only went off when when it noticed the fire, but got a cell phone to dial numbers for help. Um, and you know what our point was as lots of other teachers looked at this stuff was that if he had put any more context in than make something, that would have limited what kids do. Because as he said, he could not have imagined that these seventh graders could do all this stuff in what was basically their first coding experience. Um, So what we found is when we let the students create the context, we, um, we enable them to just take off. And to us, the make what defines Maker is that the student, the child, creates the context for the work. And we find it's our job as adults to fit the content into that.
1: And, and you know, the other thing I think is that when we talk about the concept of timeless um, learning, that one of the things that we've discovered, discovered is we've opened the door for our teachers to really experiment with a variety of different ways to help kids support kids up to, to find success in the school environment as well as outside school. as I had a high school kid say to me at one point who really became enamored of drones and he had watched them on, on YouTube had never had one in his hand and walked into a makerspace and actually started creating drones and eventually started a drone club, club in his school eventually designed a curriculum for a middle school. so he said, I'm just an average kid you know I'm not a kid that's going to go to an Ivy League school. I'm not gonna get into UVA, I'm just an average kid. And what I think people start to learn is there is no such thing as average. You know, it is the end of average when you give kids those opportunities. But when we talk about timeless learning, one of the things that I really appreciate, and I think that play is on this list of, that if you go back to the very roots of who we are as learners, whether it's at three years old or whether it was 10,000 years ago, that humans learn. And high school kids told me this several years ago when I said, so, hey, are you guys gonna walk out of school and go enroll in a lot of virtual courses. And they said, no, nah. you know, and I had kind of thought, you know, I was kind of following the Clayton Christensen story where he was saying by 2020, 50% of the kids would be in, in virtual courses and would have walked out of our high schools. What I heard from our high school kids is that they love learning in social learning communities with their peers. And they love teachers. They love adults who build relationships with them. Adults mentor them, they're models for them. They are, They are people who help them to figure out how to do things and coach them. And so it strikes me that the what, who we are as humans in terms of learning, we learn with stories, we learn with play, we learn with movement, dance, we learn around campfires, we learn sometimes in solitude, we learn sometimes cross-pollinating at the proverbial uh, stream where everybody meets up and exchanges ideas and goods and services, that humans by ver- their very nature where we like to apprentice, we like to learn side by side with somebody that knows something we don't know. Sometimes today that happens on YouTube. So we really believe that one of the things with the turning point of the smart machine age, that rather than becoming more tuned into how we make learning much more filtered and discreet, a la the focus that came out of the accountability movement, it's almost like we need to go back to our roots as human learners and discover those things that build community, build who we are as social learners, and use that to create environments in which humans are gonna thrive, given some of the challenges that we see coming with the smart machine age. And so we're kind of a back to a different kind of basics in terms of learning. It's not the basics of the 20th century. Maybe it takes us back to the beginning of time of who we are as human beings and what really causes us to be curious, passionate, um, to really want to pursue big questions, those kinds of things. And and so that's what we've really been doing in the school system where we've worked and with others across the country is to be able to say, how do you get back to the best of who you are as a teacher and the best of who our learners always are when they're learning together in social learning environments? So it's almost a kind of a, a look at tribes through a very different picture of schools as spaces where people learn as maybe they did in tribal settings. Ira, am I getting too far out there on that?
0: No, you know, I, I think one of the things that we've tried to say is is that learning, a child's learning shouldn't slow down when they start school, um, which always seems to be the nature of things. So we want that arc to be going and we want it to be for every single kid and, and, and it doesn't, you know, we're not exchanging one group of kids succeeding for another. What we're finding is that we give every kid a path to, to follow and that, you know, when they get their choices, and we've tried to build as many choices in our technology as in our spaces, as in our curriculum, it all goes together. Um, you know, we're, we're a rare school system that the students when they get their one to one computers they are the administrators of those machines they get to download and install whatever they want so you know we try to do this across the board because our basic belief is that we trust in childhood and we trust children
1: and and the other thing that we say is that you know mistakes that children make and it can be with technology maybe it's with a soldering iron or with a paintbrush um, and we believe that, that all kids really need a continuum of tools because part of growing up is learning to pick the tools you need to do the work or the, the hobbies or whatever it is you want to do. But one of the things that we really believe is that, that kids are going to make mistakes along the way, whether it's with te- any kind of technology. And one of the most important things that we should be able to do is to make sure that mistakes that kids make are learning experiences, are opportunities to grow and develop and figure out what would I do next time and not to see mistakes as life sentences. And too often, when kids mess up in school, what we we tend to do is to try to punish the mess up out of them instead of accepting that we adults, if we were held to the same standards that we hold our kids to in schools when it comes to making mistakes, a whole bunch of us would be spending a lot of time in time out and in the principal's office. And the reality is part of being a human is figuring things out not through necessarily your successes, but also through the things that don't work out so well. And what do you learn to do next time? And so we see that as a really important part of the whole process is kids learn from from messy situations in their lives.
3: Well, Pam and Ira, we are just eating up what you guys are uh, throwing out at us here. It's uh, great, great stuff. Scott and I are right on the same page with you guys. Uh, I think you've given our listeners so much to think about, and uh, they can check out your book, uh, of course, available wherever you can buy books, Timeless Learning, um, on Amazon and so on. So uh, we're going to switch gears with you, though, right now and uh, play a little game.
1: All right, Ira.
3: The two of you you are a powerhouse team, and you encourage students to work in teams. Mm -hmm. So we thought we'd ask you some questions about teams today. <laughs> All right. So, Scott, why don't you tell our audience who Pam and I are going to be competing for today, or are we going to have them say who they're going to be competing for?
2: Pam and Ira, who are we going to be competing for? Yeah, I can to-
1: guarantee you that I'm going to win, and that oh. I'm going to win from Mia Shand, who teaches at Heard Elementary in Albemarle County and works with every child to find talents and build on those.
0: All right. No, so- you're, you're wrong, Pam. I'm going to win from Mia Shand, who <laughs> teaches. <laughs> Wait,
1: at- both playing uh, for?
0: At Agrahert Elementary and, and runs the best virtual field trip program in the country. Wow, it
3: sounds like we need to have her on a show, too.
1: <laughs> oh, she's amazing. You, you wouldn't go wrong with <laughs> Mia.
3: You're against each other to uh, play for the same person. <laughs> okay.
2: It's a better win, I guess, right?
1: <laughs> it's called a win win. <laughs> we got to find out
3: who's going to win between you guys.
2: Uh, Mia, hey, listen, Mia, you're gonna be awarded a free download of an album by the is there such albums as from by the ridiculously popular Edger rock band rocking the standards who also played live in Virginia. I just wanted to share that really fast.
1: (laughs) Mia's gonna love it.
3: Cool. Well, um, so (laughs) uh. (laughs) We need to have you guys each have a sound so that you can buzz in, so we know who uh, has the answer first. Pam, uh, what is your sound going to be?
1: Well, I was hoping it could be a as a snake, like a like a snake.
3: You want, but I don't know if that's going to be very strong sound. How about this? Oh, she's going to bang on something. Okay, so is Pam, and then Ira, what's your sound going to be? Mine's
2: just going to be the classic ding.
3: OK, so we got a banging and we got a ding.
2: So here, I don't um, want to work. I just want to bang on the drums all day. I just want
3: to ding, 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 ding all day. OK, all right. Um, Scott, here's our first question. Uh, you want to go ahead and give the first one?
2: Sure. Okay. Which major city is the only city where all major sports teams, oh, really Baseball, like- NHL, NFL, have the same colors? Is it that is so unfair? <laughs> Chicago. No, here's your choices. Is <laughs> it a? Tim, I thought you were going to say oh, the choices.
3: out. Pam's out for right now. <laughs> Ira gets to hear the choices.
2: Is it a? Tim, that's you. Come on, is well,
3: Boston, it Boston? Boston. B. Pittsburgh or E. Seattle. Ira. Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh
1: is <laughs> See, that nice. is such an unfair question because he knows every little bit of sports trivia. Everybody knows it. It is so unfair. Yeah, well,
3: <laughs> non-sports. Well, maybe. Some non-sports.
1: Okay. Uh, this is rigged. This is rigged. This is fake news.
3: <laughs> Do you know the colors of the teams in Pittsburgh? Black and yellow. There you go. There you go. Okay. So question number two. A non-sports question, Pam. <laughs> but don't forget to wait for the choice, unless you know the answer. If you know the answer, sure, you don't have to wait for the choices, okay?
2: Although the choices are the comedy part of it, right, Sam? That's right. That's right.
3: Which comedy team was responsible for the famous routine about who's on first? Is it A?
2: Cheech and Sean.
3: Is it B? Laurel and Hardy. Or is it C?
2: Abbott and Costello. Dang.
3: Oh, we got Ira. Yes, go Ira. having Costello. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: was like a second ahead of him on my bang, right. and I knew that because it's who's on first, right?
2: That's right. On second.
1: Okay,
3: yeah. Well, we've got one more for you. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you did bang the uh, the stick there first. I didn't Absolutely. hear it. <laughs> 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 All right. Which which? Uh, oh, Scott. Question number three.
1: He's already one, won two, three. out of three. We could just end this painful sequence. <laughs>
2: <laughs> which one of these? Which, question number three? Which one of these is not the real name of an actual minor league baseball team? Which one is not? <laughs>
3: Don't who, worry, who, Pam. You got equal chance on this. Okay, that's right. Not
2: okay. the real name. You're looking There's for no,
3: for that. no advantage. Uh, yeah, no. I have no advantage.
2: Is it A, the office managers? B, the yard goats? Or C, the Biscuits, which is not a real name of an actual minor league baseball team.
1: Can you read those again?
2: A, office managers, B, yard goats, or C, biscuits.
1: Don't you dare Google this. Biscuits.
2: Bing. Okay. <laughs> biscuits. There you go. Dad, you're going to go with biscuits? Oh, that's not um, correct. Office <laughs> You're gonna go with office manager Ira? Yeah. That is correct. That is not but there is- This is like a- see I told you nobody
1: wants to be in the room with Ira. In fact, he's getting he's been getting boosted up to be on Jeopardy.
0: Well that's not gonna happen. Right. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so there really is a team named the Yard Goats, and it really is a minor league team named the Biscuits, which is hard to believe. Really? Well, they're the
0: Rumble Ponies in Binghamton, New York, so it, you know it doesn't get much worse than that.
2: <laughs> hey, well, good job, you—you <laughs> you got three out of three correct. <laughs> That's good enough to be a winner. Congratulations, you have won absolutely nothing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you got a download of Rockin' the Standards, education rock and roll music for second through sixth graders. Tim, you're gone. We'll edit you in somehow. Okay. <laughs> we lost Tim. Um, uh, Pam, Ira, tell us where people can connect to you now that you have a broader audience.
0: Well, uh, probably the best way to connect to us is, is through uh, Twitter. Uh, she is at Pam Moran, and I'm at Ira Sokol. Um, and then we can connect and go further. We'll have websites up. There is a timeless learning website for the book. Um, and a Timeless
1: Learning Twitter feed, Twitter which feed, is at Timeless, L-R-N-G.
0: Right. So,
2: Awesome.
1: And we, we love Scott, Tim, you guys inviting us to join you yeah. and uh, to talk a little bit, not just about the book, but about the bigger picture of change. And and one of the things I and I have been talking about is that we do see a change in the national narrative. Yeah. Um, we think that, that resources are certainly one of the things that's a real challenge, but whether it's you and your brother, or whether it's you know friends that we have in Chicago or South Carolina or you know Texas or wherever, there are people all over this country right now that are reinventing education. And we just wanna be able to help support that up and to help uh, people figure out what's their next step in their journey. So thank you. We you wanna encourage your
2: audience to go out and check out this book. It's definitely something that you're gonna appreciate and, and connect with these two amazing educators and just know that they have been on the forefront of pushing forward, and they've been doing it fearlessly, which I believe is one of the biggest motivators for things staying the way they are, is that fear factor. And uh, we want to just thank you again for being on the show, and we hope uh, we hope to have you back again for the next book. Yep. yep.
1: <laughs> and uh, maybe Chad will be able to join us we'll next join time. Us Matt, of course, is still working in the in the division, and he is a principal, a teaching principal, in a a, a, a small high school and middle school combination. That's kind of a democr- shaping up to be a real democratic space for kids. So, you know, he'll hopefully be with us the next time around. So, thank Thanks you guys. For
2: us. Yep. We want to remind our audience that uh, if you hop onto iTunes. Just give us a little love on there. We will always appreciate that. And don't forget to go check out Globalschoolplayday.com. It's all about the why. Of let's do what's right for kids. Let's not just do things because we always have. An unstructured playtime for kids provides so many benefits, including empathy, Building um, so teamwork, good. imagination, creativity—all the things down. we want our Using kids to continue to grow in. Uh, Curiosity—it's such a powerful tool, and I'm it's free. Like you and you can—all you have to do is provide the ear time for your earl for, for, for our kids. And um, so, go and check out globalschoolplayday.com. Pam, Ira, thanks again for being on the show, and we'll we'll see you next time, mom and dad. Thanks for watching. Bye. Bye. I think I might change my name to Ron Bedley, so I could be one of those Bedley brothers. Mm Mhm. Yeah. Bedley brothers, Bedley Bedley brothers, bringing
1: education information like no other. Bedley brothers, Bedley Bedley brothers.